This is Grace Wan. Coming up tonight on State of the Bay, world-class cities host world-class events. That's what San Francisco is doing this week with APEC. Heads of state from all over the Pacific Rim are in the city this week, and San Francisco is looking tidy. We'll talk to Carla Short, new head of the Department of Public Works, about what they're doing to keep the city looking its best this week and beyond. And one thing foreign media may be looking at is our region's housing woes. Despite many new laws intended to streamline housing approvals, a new state report shows that it takes a really long time to build anything in San Francisco. We'll dig into why. Plus, weird histories. We'll visit San Francisco's odd salon. That's all coming up next after this news. State of the Bay. I'm Grace Swan. In San Francisco, it takes 10 months longer than anywhere else in the state to get a housing project approved. Despite all the talk from City Hall and the Board of Supervisors aimed at building more housing, the process is not getting easier. We'll look at a new study about San Francisco's process, which has been described as Byzantine, and dig into the consequences. Later, we'll talk to the founders of San Francisco's Odd Salon, which features strange stories from history, science, art, and adventure. Stay tuned for that. And first, world leaders from around the Pacific Rim have descended on San Francisco for APEC, the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Conference. The city is under a microscope. There is tremendous pressure for San Francisco to be clean and safe for the foreign delegations convening here this week. At the forefront of this effort is San Francisco's Department of Public Works or DPW. And I am so pleased to welcome back a friend of the show. She's now the permanent director of Public Works, Carla Short. Carla, welcome back to State of the Bay. And thank you so much for being here on such a busy week for you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Grace. Well, APEC began on Saturday. And curious, what did DPW do to get prepared? Uh, well, I could say, what haven't we done? We've been doing <laughs> a lot, I, I think, to get prepared. We've, we've managed to do some really great beautification projects that were kind of in our pipeline, but we wanted to finish them up before APEC. So we painted the pedestrian bridge over Geary at Webster and working with the Japantown Community Benefits District. Um, it's a really fabulous, um, sort of bright orange red color and it's got fabulous lanterns. We expect that there will be a lot of folks going to, um, you know, not just the Moscone area, but all over San Francisco to see some of our great neighborhoods like Japantown and Chinatown. Um, we also did a wonderful uh, crosswalk treatment in North Beach and then also in uh, the edge of Chinatown um, at Stockton and Union. So uh, we have cloud uh, clouds in the crosswalks um, and the Italian flag in the crosswalks. We've been um, sort of using the momentum of getting ready for APEC to freshen up some of our landscape uh, around the city. And then, of course, what most people are curious about is our street cleaning efforts. Um, we've been doing what we do, which is we clean the streets 24-7 uh, in San Francisco. But we've also been planning for how we manage some of the traffic impacts that we're all going to be um, experiencing over the next few days. Well, did all this work, it, it sounds like it's part of what you always are doing, and then there's a few extras. Did it require more personnel? And where did the budget come from to pay for all these things? 
Well, we're living within our means. Uh, so it is a lot of work. Uh, we have really, our street cleaning crews have been doing an incredible job. I think we all really recognize the importance, as you noted, of this event for San Francisco and having delegates from all over the world and 2,200 international media, uh, you know, lots of other folks who come along with a big international delegation means we want the whole city to look good and the whole city to shine. But we also know that it's important for San Francisco to be successful, to really reinvigorate our tourism, um, which we all rely on. So I think public works crews, uh, many of our staff live in San Francisco, born and raised in San Francisco, or like me, have been working here for decades. And we have a lot of pride in this city. We want San Francisco to be the shining uh, star that it can be. So our crews have really just been giving it their all Um and I think have really been knocking it out of the park. Well, foreign journalists have already been telling the tale of San Francisco. I mean, no surprise, Doom Loop is in there. And the Chinese media has published reports and they've called San Francisco a, quote, ruined city, a garbage city, and a total failure. So how has DPW dealt with some of the issues that have gotten so much media play, the homelessness encampments, the drug dealing that happens at 7th and Market? Have you been moving people? Well, our role, first of all, I, we, we've, we've been seeking to rebrand the doom loop, the bloom loop. <laughs> And I really loop. Okay, I love it. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You know, San Francisco is a beautiful city and people like to focus on some of our toughest challenges. But I think if we were really telling the true story of San Francisco, we we would also be focusing on some of our wonderful successes. Um, So so let's let's tell the the bloom loop narrative. Um, But our job is, you know, we we aren't the folks who are going to be arresting um, people or or moving people, we are the folks who who clean the city. And so we work with our sister agencies uh, and we do our best to keep San Francisco clean. And if there's a large group of people, whether that's, uh, you know, a delegation or a protest, um, and we, I certainly strongly support First Amendment rights, um, we're going to clean behind. So we come through after that event takes place and we will do our best to clean the city. I think that most people would agree that San Francisco, when it needs to, can really look like a shiny penny, that your your organization, volunteers, you know, the mayor's office is behind this, the board of supervisors, in really making San Francisco look good. And certainly during the summer with Dreamforce, that was the case. But there was some criticism even after that from Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff basically saying, why is it that we can make our city look great for one-off events, but it can't look like that every single day of the week for regular residents. And what would you say to that? Well, I would say that uh, we we do um, move resources around uh, to try to, you know, make the city look good and hospitable when we know that we have people coming to visit. But we have our crews working around the clock throughout San Francisco. So we're we're still in every neighborhood. We may have pulled a few people from different neighborhoods to help support some of the efforts downtown, but they go back and work in those other neighborhoods um, as soon as they're done. So 
I think we we do have to live within our means. Um, we have a certain number of resources, and and so we deploy them uh, in the best way that we can, depending on what's what's happening in the city. And that means we also pull people for events that are happening in other neighborhoods as well. So you know, if there's a if there's a great event that's happening in the Sunset District, we might pull a few folks from a downtown cleaning route to go and support uh, merchants out on Irving Street, for example. How much autonomy does your department have to make those kinds of decisions? What I'm curious about is whether the mayor's office or the board of supervisors is saying, hey, DPW, you have to do X um, for us to look good in APEC, and this is what needs to happen. Or do you get to decide that yourself? Uh, We really get to decide that. I mean, we are certainly encouraged to have San Francisco looking good, but frankly, we get that encouragement from the mayor and members of the board every day. They they all want San Francisco to look as as good as it can. Um, And so do we. So we do our best uh, to deploy resources in the most efficient and effective way possible. Um, And as I said, you know, we have a lot of our staff who are super invested in this city. They, they love San Francisco. And so they really try to do their best, especially when we have a big event in town. I wanted to focus on the fact that you were the interim director for the DPW for the last two years. I mean, you stepped in when Muhammad Nehru, Nehru, your predecessor, um, was taken out of that position. What are your goals in the next 12 months? What are what what's on the Carla short wish list of things that you want to get done? Well, first and foremost, you know, we want to contribute to San Francisco's economic recovery as much as we can. So that includes not just keeping the city as clean as it can be and making sure that when people come that they want to spend time in our communities and our neighborhoods, but also um, you know, creating little little um, pockets of joy for visitors um, that might keep them in San Francisco a little bit longer. So we have engineers and architects who are working on streetscape projects, who are uh, revitalizing the infrastructure of San Francisco so that it can be uh, a city where people really want to come and spend their time. Um, so that's a big priority, I would say, for the department. My personal priority is that I want San Francisco Public Works to be a department that people feel really proud to work in again um, and to really be the best department that we can be. I want, frankly, everyone to come, to want to work for San Francisco Public Works. <laughs> so, you know, really working with our staff, listening to them, hearing what can we do, um, you know, to try to make this place the place that they want to be and the place that they want to work. So that would be my personal goal for for the department. And for people who might not remember or know, your department takes care of the trees, you clean the streets, you deal with the roads, you do the upkeep for civic buildings. So it's a big portfolio. It is. We have engineers and architects who design civic buildings like the incredible Southeast Community Center. We have... uh, project managers who manage projects and, you know, deliver streetscape projects, uh, earthquake safety projects for other city departments like police and fire. And then, of course, as you noted, we are out there cleaning the streets, pruning the trees, repairing potholes, repairing civic buildings. It's a it's a big department with a huge portfolio and we affect every single neighborhood in San Francisco. And I think for me that what that's what makes me most proud to work in this department is that when we do well, we can really have a positive impact on people's lives. Well, you know so many nooks and crannies of the city given your job. I know you love trees and there is a new tree nursery in town. But tell us, Carla, where should I bring 
friends who are coming from out of town, seeing San Francisco for the first time, what little niche that I might not know of, where should I bring them? Well, I think uh, I would check out the new Webster Street pedestrian bridge and take them to Japantown. That's a really fun, um, beautiful pop of color that is just really joyful. And then, of course, Japan ha- Japantown has so many great um, restaurants and cultural uh, locations to visit. So that that would be a good one. Um, I think the other one that I, I'm just so proud of right now that I keep telling everyone about is the Southeast Community Center. It's right on the corner of Evans and Third Street. Uh, this was a PUC funded project. So I want to give a big shout out to the Public Utilities Commission um, because they actually were our client department, but Public Works did the design, the engineering, the project management, the construction management, the landscape design, and it's an extraordinary facility. It's got two acres of landscaping, it's rain gardens, and then it's this beautiful community space. So I think that's a real um, hidden gem in San Francisco. Well, I definitely think we everyone should check that out. It's always such a treat to be able to talk to you, Carla Short. Um, congratulations on your new job with DPW and with Good luck with the rest of APEC. That was Carla Short. She's the new Department of Public Works uh, director. And coming up next on State of the Bay, do San Francisco supervisors actually want the state to take over the process for issuing building permits in the city? Sometimes it feels like that. More on that issue right after the break. Stay with us. Tune into Cross Currents tomorrow morning at 11. We'll continue the story of a Coast Miwok family's uprooting, and we get a glimpse at the life they lost. What would my grandmother be doing right now? Would she be breaking the neck of a chicken and plucking it? Would she be making bread? Coming Home to the Cove, a special series from Emergence Magazine. That's tomorrow morning at 11 on Cross Currents from KALW News. Hello, I'm Jeff Hayden, host of Your Legal Rights. This week on Your Legal Rights, a special program. My guests will talk to you about just what cryptocurrency will look like after the conviction of Sam Bankman-Fried. Best of all, as always, we'll take your calls and answer your questions. That's Your Legal Rights, Wednesday at 6 o'clock, right here at KALW San Francisco. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. In San Francisco, housing approval takes 10 months longer than anywhere else in California. It takes 523 days to get entitled to build in the city and then another 605 days to get approved to build. Why? Why does it take so long? And what are the consequences of that? Because in the next eight years, California is requiring San Francisco to build 82,000 new homes. It's part of an aggressive plan to address California's chronic housing shortage. But the building process here may be the ultimate stumbling block. As anyone who has ever tried to get a permit to build in the city can tell you, it's painful. According to a new study by the California Department of Housing and Development, as of mid-July, San Francisco was approving fewer than 10 units of housing a day, which would get the city to only 33% of its goals at the eight-year mark. Here to help us understand this bewildering situation is Louis Mirante. He's from the Bay Area Council. Welcome, Louis. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, very happy to have you here. We also have Mo- Moira O'Neill. She's the Senior Research Fellow and center at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley. Welcome, Moira. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah. And before we dive in, we'd love to hear from you, our listeners, about how to build and whether you've had struggles to do that. Have you tried to get a building permit in San Francisco? What was your experience like? Are you a builder in the city or have you ever hired an expediter? Give us a call. We're at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at klw.org. And we're also on social media. We definitely want to hear your housing issues. Okay, first off, let's start with a clip from Gustavo Velasquez. He's the director of the California Department of Housing and Development, and that's in, that's the department that came out with this new report. Here he is. We know that San Francisco is taking way, way too long proof in giving the green light to new housing. So what we have done is we have come up with a very comprehensive analysis of what are the constraints. It looks like we're having a little bit of a glitch with the sound there. I mean, Gustavo sounded like he was in a very large echo chamber, but essentially he was summarizing what that housing uh, department report found. So I want to start with you, Lewis. The state of California is really watching San Francisco, and, and on some level they don't seem to trust the city to actually build. So let's cut to the chase. What happens if San Francisco doesn't build 82,000 units of housing in eight years? Sure. Well, the, the as you mentioned, the housing crisis is becoming more and more salient for state legislators. And the frustration of legislators in the Capitol is just palpable at this point. Uh, that means that they're enacting more and more penalties for cities that fail to do the right thing uh, when it comes to housing. And San Francisco is definitely chief among the test cases here. So uh, San Francisco, as you mentioned, has to plan for about 82,000 homes under what's called the Regional Housing Needs Assessment Process. Uh, that's a state requirement to plan for what the state thinks you're going to grow by or what sort of housing needs you have. And if San Francisco fails to make progress on their plan to meet those numbers, they can face really steep penalties from the state, including loss of funding for affordable housing, uh, loss of control of their own zoning codes, and uh, the ability to uh, simply or, and lose the ability to uh, uh, to to block any uh, permits under some circumstances. Um, so the, the 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 consequences can be quite dramatic. Well, Moira O'Neill, you're the senior research fellow at the Center for Law, Energy and the Environment at Cal. And you provided a lot of data for the state study. What were you looking at and what did you find? Well, the team that I was working with, what we focused our attention on is how San Francisco applied its own local regulation to proposed housing development and also how they applied state law in the process of approving proposed, uh, proposals to develop uh, multifamily housing or units that would something that would produce five or more units. What we found, you know, I, the, the big takeaway is what we found is that it's pretty much difficult to build anything. There wasn't any type of housing that would move easily through the approval process. And one of the primary drivers of the of what created that problem was the city's local rules that embed what's called discretionary review to every approval process. And so what that means is that the city is employing local rules that require or allow the city to impose a set of conditions on the approval process. And that creates a certain amount of uncertainty, and it also extends the approval time frame as well. If you do achieve a final approval, it's going to take a very long time, but there's also a certain amount of uncertainty as to whether or not you'll secure approval. Boyrat, can you give me an example of what discretionary approval looks like when you're trying to get a permit? Yes. So 
what the concept means is that you're proposing something to develop. And I'm going to place it in the context of San Francisco because there was something particularly unique about San Francisco. You could propose something that conformed to what the local rules said you're allowed to build in terms of the form of the building and the size of the building and how many units you would provide once it was built. But they have local rules in place that still allow the planning department to, as I mentioned, impose conditions of approval or to basically extend the approval process for things that you might not be able to predict would be required based on how the rules are written. And that's that's the distinction between using something that requires discretion in the approval process as opposed to something that is what we call ministerial which is where somebody shows up with a proposal to build and it conforms to what the local rules say. And so long as there's that match that the proposal to build aligns with what the local rules say, you have a certainty that you'll, you'll, you'll get that approval. That's the distinction. Is there, um, when you were looking at this data and putting, pulling together this information, was there some background as to why this level of discretion exists at so many levels in the process? Is it systemic? Is it from the Board of Supervisors? Are we creating laws that demand this? It's in the local law. So there is, it is throughout uh, the entire city's local framework because it exists in a portion of the municipal code's some of it doesn't even exist in the planning and zoning law. There is a provision in the business and tax code that allows for all permits to be discretionary. And then there's an interpretation of the local charter that also creates a similar rule. And then there are additional rules within the planning and zoning code for specific types of developments that also require discretion through different kinds of special permits that you have to secure in order to get a final approval to build. I can see how that level of discretion might be to protect neighborhoods and protect communities. I mean, nobody wants San Francisco to end up looking like, you know, a suburban dump, you know, where just you can build whatever you want. But one thing that struck me about the report is one of the lines in the study said it was kind of dependent on the professional who was assigned to your project as to whether you would get through this uh, entire discretionary approval process simply or not simply. Can you explain that a little bit? Mm. What you're referring there, referring to there in the report is what we discovered through interviews about the process that comes after the discretionary entitlement process. And so that's getting into another level of complexity in the local process in San Francisco to build. So in, in, at the point in time in which you go to secure your, your permits to actually construct the building after you've gone through this discretionary process and planning review, what we've heard in interviews with a lot of different stakeholders from different stakeholder groups is that there was an inconsistency. There was a lack of uniformity around how the construction permitting process would unfold and that whoever was assigned to the permitting process would usually determine how it would proceed in terms of how many you know checks you would go through and the kinds of things you would have to respond to as well as how long it would take and that it was dictated more by the person and not the proposal to build. In other words, what you were proposing to build didn't determine how that process would unfold. But that was 
actually referring to something that follows after you've already <laughs> got through the discretionary process. I mean, you can understand why people call this Byzantine. I mean, Louis Morante, you're from the Bay Area Council, and that's a group that tries to, you know, encourage uh, business and come up with reg- laws and regulations that make sense for business. I'm sure you're listening to this and maybe your ears are bleeding in terms of what the process is like <laughs> in San Francisco. Um, when you, What were some of the recommendations in the report that stood out for you, from you, for you and that you feel are top priority? Oh, gosh. Picking a top priority is always hard. You know, the Barry Council's members who represent some of the largest employers in the region include many home builders and I'll tell you, they are a lot less polite than Moira has been on this uh, <laughs> interview about uh, the restrictions in San Francisco. Um, you know, I think I think this this critical issue of discretion is the is the chief barrier in San Francisco. It 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 is so hard to develop in San Francisco in large part because the rules in San Francisco are unknown even to the city of San Francisco, let alone the people who try to build housing there. As Moira mentioned, it's person to person about how your project's going to be reviewed, what rules are the most important. And that's not good public policy making. And it's not how voters can make sure that their goals are accomplished through clear, objective, and reliable rules that you know they can vote for politicians based off. Um, so I, I really think reforming the city's discretion is our number one task. Well, I also think that level of discretion, I mean, you know, these departments have been caught up with in corruption scandals for the last couple of years with the FBI coming in and the Department of Justice to root out some of that corruption. And expediters are really common in the building department, as I understand it. And that just feels like a possible and an expediter is somebody who helps you get your permit through the process. And that feels like it could be rife with problems. What do you think about that, Lewis? I think that's absolutely correct. You know, you never hear of somebody bribing the DMV to get a driver's license (laughs) because the rules are clear, objective. You walk in with the paperwork and you walk out. But in places like San Francisco or Los Angeles, which has had plenty of scrutiny and and, and plenty of bad press about uh, their housing development processes and the the, the, uh, city council members there getting caught up in, in, in corruption allegations, when you when you when you have such wide discretion like this, you really invite the type of unscrupulous behavior that voters think they're voting against when they empower discretion. Um, so you're totally spot on. This is this is something that's core to I think just good government. Um, when you have clear objective rules, you should be able to apply them consistently and across the whole jurisdiction evenly and fairly. And discretion is the chief barrier to doing that. Well, let me reintroduce the program. This is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW Bay Area. I'm your host, Grace Wan. We're discussing with Moira Moira O'Neill, sorry about that, of UC Berkeley and Louis Morante of the Bay Area Council, a new state report that shows that San Francisco is not actually speeding up its building approvals despite requirements to do so. And we'd love to hear from you. Are you a builder or developer in San Francisco? Have you tried to get a permit to... to build a building or a renovation in the city. Have you ever used an expediter? We want to hear your experiences. You can join us by calling 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org.
So as part of this report, the department is giving the Board of Supervisors a deadline to address the issues in the report. Uh, Moira, what are they being asked to do? Well, the state's report lays out what San Francisco must do, right? So the report I wrote focuses on the data, but the state report lays out a series of action items for the city to reform local rules consistent with some of which is actually quite consistent with programs that were put in place in the city's housing element. And then some of the action items tighten up related programming. The I, I would say the big picture takeaway, I mean, there are multiple action items. You'd have to go to walk through all 18 uh, required items and then the 10 recommendations. But the big picture, I think, takeaway is that the city has to very carefully address the the discretion that sort of exists throughout its existing local rules in order to make sure that its approval process is implementing relevant state laws that are meant to increase objectivity in the review process, certainty of approval for certain kinds of development of housing and timeframes to constrain timeframes so that people that are proposing to build have a certain amount of predictability in what the process will look like and what it is that they can achieve when they go to propose developments. Lewis, how is the city responding? Is it planning to adopt these um, recommendations? What's its next step? (laughs) Well, if the city is responding, it's news to me. Um, (laughs) I'm quite frustrated with the lack of progress uh, over there and, 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 and their seemingly low commitment to following through on Moira's recommendations and on their own obligations that they've already made to the state as a part of the housing element. Um, The states, as you mentioned, established uh, a due date for a lot of the reforms that it expects San Francisco to make, which, again, San Francisco has already committed to making. And uh, the first upcoming due date, I think, is in 20 or so days. And the city doesn't seem to have a plan for how to meet that time, uh, that timeline. So it's it's really frustrating. It, it doesn't seem like the city is committed to you know, taking the action it needs to. And it, it it's going to leave people who need more housing in places like San Francisco in the lurch. Um, you know, go ahead, please. Oh, no, go ahead. You go <laughs> I was going to say, you know, Moira's um, Moira's work and, and, and this this effort are awesome and critical to making sure that San Francisco is a place where we can build housing. But they don't even address some of the other key barriers that I would um, be derelict if I didn't mention. Um, the city of San Francisco, for example, charges upwards of a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars in fees per home. Uh, to build in San Francisco. That's not something that they're broadly committed to reducing. In fact, San Francisco can't even tell you what the number is, what that total sum is for many types of housing projects in San Francisco until they're reviewing specific projects. Um, those fees both get passed on to consumers in the form of higher rent and higher home <laughs> home sales, um, but they're also a huge barrier to building housing in places like San Francisco. And San Francisco is also not making progress on reform, reforming that. Well, we reached out to the Board of Supervisors to get their response. Uh, my understanding is they're delaying a vote on the report until after Thanksgiving. One of the supervisors responded to us, and that was District 11, um, Asha Safiyi, who couldn't join us tonight, but he wanted us to um, hear from him. And here's a clip of what he had to say. 
The HCD report shows again how the mayor's administration says the right things about housing but fails to back up the mayor's rhetoric with results. Under her leadership, this administration is the slowest to approve housing and slowest to approve its construction in the state of California by nearly two to one margin to the next slowest city. Due to macroeconomic issues, we're seeing an increase in the cost to borrow, the cost to construct, the cost of materials to build, and a reduction in demand for office space, all of which put downward pressure on our housing production. So we're producing fewer high-value permits for condo or apartment development as a result. Yet it takes longer today to get a permit from the city than it did when we were completing nearly 5,000 units of housing a year because we have numerous redundant and unnecessary reviews that don't add to the health and safety of our city or to good design. We need to simplify the planning and building code and make it easier, not harder, to get a permit from this city. That was um, Supervisor Asha, Asha Safai. He represents District 11. We should also know that he's running for mayor. Um, you know, he uh, Safai man- mentioned some of the things that you talked about, Lewis, and are frustrated with the levels of discretion, the slow process. I mean, if you could wave a magic wand, what is it that you'd want the Board of Supervisors to do at this point? I mean, enact every, every recommendation of the report or, or something a little bit more specific or uh, narrow in our approach? Well, that would definitely be a great first start. And again, it's one that they've already committed to in a contractual obligation to the state of California to do. So it's what they have to do. Uh, I found it a little bit rich that Supervisor Safai was blaming the mayor's administration for this because the mayor's administration actually has a package that would enact many of the reforms that Moira's report calls for. And the Board of Supervisors has delayed voting on that uh, for for reasons that aren't clear to me. So the notion here that this is the mayor's problem is one I take strong issue with, in large part, too, because the Board of Supervisors continues to delay or, or, or vote no on specific housing projects that come before the Board of Supervisors. The last time I was there, they voted no on a 10 unit project. Uh, for specious environmental reasons that their own staff said weren't real environmental reasons to delay a project. Um, So it's really frustrating for me to hear a a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors try to shift blame to someone else because it's that exact pattern of behavior that have resulted in the decades-long housing crisis San Francisco now finds itself in. Well, we have a listener who writes in, the San Francisco Building Department does not see their job as issuing building permits. Rather, they see it as their job to slow down construction in the city. While I don't speak firsthand for multifamily projects, the regulations that they follow for home renovations definitely are the most convoluted, illogical set of requirements imaginable. I mean, Maura, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, is the building department as a way to slow down construction versus encourage construction? Is that something that you've seen in other entities um, across California or is that uniquely San Francisco problem? So two things I have to first qualify with. The focus on looking at post-entitlement, the building department processes, that we did in this particular report is something we only did in San Francisco at this level. So I've not done the same degree of in-depth exploration, even through interviews and other places. But that being said, 
I would say that everything that I've discovered with my colleagues and with students in San Francisco has repeatedly proven to be unique to San Francisco in terms of the procedural rules. So while there could be other kinds of delays or challenges in jurisdictions that I've studied with colleagues, I've never seen the same types of rules employed or processes employed elsewhere that I've observed in the San Francisco context. You know, Maura, we have local laws. They've been passed to streamline the building process, and they seem aligned with San Francisco's values, which, you know, everybody wants to build more housing. We Everybody recognizes that there's a housing crisis, and yet here we are. Is it going to require kind of a full-scale revamp of the the laws that we currently have on the books, or is this a matter of enforcement? I think it's a mixture of both. So most of the stakeholders that we spoke with, and that's across lots of different stakeholder groups, so that's ranging from developers, planners, uh, community advocates, housing advocates, would would argue that there needs to be an overhaul. And careful review of the local rules also indicates that there are certain provisions in local law that do demand scrutiny and rewriting in order to address these challenges. The at, at present, the local rules require everything to move through this discretionary process that we've described to be a huge problem for moving development along quickly in San Francisco. And that's even for all of those developments that streamlining should theoretically make move faster through the approval process. But I think there's a second issue in enforcement as well. The fact is, is there's an abundance of state law that is meant to help resolve some of these challenges. And it is true that you need enforcement of those rules in order to see them create the desired impacts. And so you need both. And I, and I think that what we're observing right now is manifesting in the enforcement side, right? And the fact that the state in engaged in this policy and practice review clearly shows attention on San Francisco's process. But I do think there's still substantial work for San Francisco to do in terms of rewriting its own rules, if it does in fact want to deliver on what I think the city has collectively said it wants to do with respect to promoting affordability and housing, you know, multiple income levels and making sure that it attends to serving its, you know, all segments of its population, including and especially its unhoused population, the city will have to look at its own rules carefully and rewrite some of them. Well, uh, Lewis, we've talked a little bit about what the board's response has been, or at least one supervisor's response. What's the business community saying about this report, at least on, on behalf of the Bay Area Council? What's the position there? We're strongly supportive of the recommendations that the state has made, that, that Mora ha, ha, has made in this report. And a, a lot of my members, I think, are a little burnt out by working with the city these are many of these recommendations are ones that, you know, they would have made themselves or, uh, you know, ha- are things that they've known about. And the lack of focus from the Board of Supervisors to correct the problems in this report is just another signal to them that they should take their business elsewhere, which is really sad for the region. We really, really, really need developers to be building a ton of homes in San Francisco if we're going to make San Francisco an affordable place to live and work. And in fact, the data from this year indicate that we're on track for one of the worst years on record. 
I, I believe in, in July or, uh, or June of this year, the city had only permitted 184 homes, not projects, 184 homes in 2023. And by that pace, it would take 280 years for oh. the city to meet its RENA obligations. Ever is. So um, what happens then? Let's say nothing, the board doesn't do anything. The mayor's hands are tied. Is the state going to come in and take this process over, um, Lewis? Uh, it very much can. Uh, the law allows them to. Um, the state's never done something ambitious with any city. Um, it's really a political question. And at the end of the day, Governor Gavin Newsom is going to decide what the what what the, the role of his administration is going to be in stepping into permitting in San Francisco. I I don't know. I mean, the, 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 this is such a frustration, even for San Francisco's elected representatives to the legislature, perhaps especially for them, folks like Scott Weiner, assembly member, uh, you know, senator from San Francisco, member Bill Ting, and assembly member Matt Haney, all wrote extremely consequential laws this year that directly responded to specific behaviors that San Francisco is unique in um, using to, to for slow housing. Uh, many of those laws were informed by Moyer's work. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like even that has changed the tone at, at the Board of Supervisors. Well, is there anything the mayor can do, Lewis? Well, the mayor is a little bit limited. She it does have to have the support of her board of supervisors to change policies. Um, but she's using her bully pulpit to great effect, I think. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I wish her well in trying to reform <laughs> what the city does. But uh, I don't wish I were her. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, Moira O'Neill, I want to give you the last word since you put so much of the, your effort into this report. What can a regular San Franciscan do? Just get informed about the process and uh, vote, or I mean, where where should what should uh, you know? Somebody who lives in the city may not want house to build housing tomorrow, but cares about it. I think you've named one of them. I I do think people who care about housing have to participate in electoral politics, right, and think critically about their who they elect in terms of local officials, because I think Lewis has really explained the different roles within their within local government. I also think it's important to try to gather as much insight as you can and information about how the process works to hold the locality accountable under the rules that are already in place. The more you know, right, the more you can uh, you can participate in applying pressure on the city to follow the laws that are already on the books. There are rules in place that require San Francisco to do better. Right. So holding your local officials accountable under those rules could potentially be helpful. But here, to be candid, I would actually I would I would suggest connecting in with Lewis or others that that might be more directly engaged with the political strategies that work best. Well, I actually encourage also for people to read the report that's easy to read. It makes a lot of sense um, and it's available online. Thank you so much to the both of you for joining us here on State of the Bay. We've been talking with Louis Morante of the Bay Area Council and Moira O'Neill. She's a senior research fellow for the Center for Law, Energy and the Environment at UC Berkeley. And her research went into the report from the for the California Department of Housing. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Thank you.
Thank you. Coming up after the break, Fred Pitts will sit down with Trey Bolchowski and Annetta Black, the founders of Odd Salon, which curates cocktail hour lectures in San Francisco, highlighting strange but true stories from history, science, art, and adventure, all live on stage and, of course, over cocktails. Who wouldn't love that? You won't want to miss this interview, so stay with us. Tune in to KALW Monday night at 7. It's the town hall. Conversations about the Bay Area that happened live at 220 Montgomery Street in downtown San Francisco. This week, what are we doing about homelessness? I do things maybe I really wouldn't normally do, like just to have a place to sleep. And it's just, I think that more needs to be done. I really do. It's the broadcast of KALW's Town Hall. What are we doing about homelessness? That's tonight at 7 here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. You're listening to the music of Jasper Manning, one of the many local musicians taking part in the KALW On Air Folk Festival this Saturday. Five hours of continuous live music from 2 to 7. Other musicians include Alex Degrassi and the Real Sarahs, Lori Lewis, and the Sampaguitas Trio. That's the On Air Folk Festival this Saturday from 2 to 7 here on 91.7 KALW San Francisco. I want you to think back on your history classes in high school. Chances are, unless you're a history geek like me, teaching was pretty lame. But imagine if your teacher said, today we're going to talk about history's overlooked and undertold stories from legends of lost cities to masters of art forgery, engineering failures to murderous sideshow performers, daring heists, questionable taxidermy, and tales of epic revenge. Sounds pretty cool, right? Yep, well, there is such a place outside of school. Odd Salon perfectly named. It's a history-oriented in-person gathering in San Francisco that curates lectures highlighting strange but true stories from history, science, art, and adventure. Live on stage and over cocktails. The best way to learn things. And we have the two masterminds behind Odd Salon with us today, Trey Balchowski and Annetta Black. Trey, Annetta, welcome to State of the Bay. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Absolutely. My pleasure. I mean, I I feel like I should lose my history card because I, I'm just finding out about Odd Salon. That, that's shame on me. That's, a, that's my kind of thing. But let's start at the very beginning. You two met at Burning Man, what, 20 years ago? Is that right? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. And you started Odd Salon in 2014 and it apparently kind of grew out of your friendship. So my question is, did you come up with this while you were at Burning Man or was there some other inspiration? Well, actually, Odd Salon was a slow burn. My great-great-grandfather, Alexander Black, was a salonist in the 1800s. He spoke in the Lyceum Circuit, which was kind of a Victorian infotainment traveling lecture circuit. And when I was a teenager, I read his autobiography. And at the time, I thought, wow, what a great gig. This is super great. I would like to do that. And then, lo and behold, it turned out as an adult that it wasn't really a thing. And Trey and I, we found our shared love of history, especially local history. And we went to a lot of events with fabulous speakers on super Mm -hmm. interesting subjects. And they could not be more boring. Yeah. That's that's what history is for people. Yeah. We kept trying to find the fascinating history stories. And we finally realized that if we wanted to have that, we needed to create it ourselves. And since then, realized that for a lot of people, 
they think of history because of grade school as names and dates and dead kings and really boring rote memorization. Mm -hmm. But what we want to do is show that the history of everything that ever happened to anyone who ever lived can't possibly be boring because there's scandals and craziness all through history. Well, I'm a history geek. I used to have 700 history books on my wall. That's all I ever read. And people ask the question, why do you read history? And I say, the stuff that really happened is far more interesting than anything you could ever make up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I totally, I, I love what you do. I'm probably going to be a, become a disciple of Ad Salam. Here's a question. Where do you find the speakers? Our speakers come from our community. So when we first started, we convinced 10 of our friends to join us and conned them with a shiny pin. <laughs> and surprisingly, 10 of our friends were very game. And then after our second show, we started having people come up to us saying, how do I get on this stage? Thinking that there was a arduous application process. And the application process was essentially, tell us that you have a cool story, get on our stage and tell it. Yeah. And now we've grown into a little bit more of a mature organization, but our audience is still our biggest source of our speakers. It's you know, amazing. Just, we, from the very beginning, decided intentionally that we wanted to have a platform that would invite experts, but that would also allow enthusiastic amateurs. Mm -hmm. Ten minutes is not too much of a risk to tell a story. And we try this to provide people the tools that they need, not mm -hmm. only to tell a good story, but also to do uh, research responsibly. Now, you mentioned fellowship to develop your speakers. Just tell me about that. How does that work? Yeah, so our fellowship program is you start as a speaker. And as a speaker, you get mentored. And you get mentored by our fellows and by ourselves. And so a fellow is someone that has spoken three times on stage, and they get invited to be part of this fellowship. They mm -hmm. get pinned on stage. The shiny lapel pin with our spokes beast, Harvey, who is a mm -hmm. Wolpertinger. And... In the fellowship, you're also in a really awesome group that talks backstage and has their own events and creates experiences for each other. Really? Mm -hmm. What's on the pin? It's Harvey, our spokesbeast, who's a Wolpertinger. What's a Wolpertinger? It's like a jackalofa bird. It's a German, <laughs> German gas taxidermy that I first encountered in Munich. And it's, it's got the body of a rabbit, um, antlers of a deer, Wings of a pheasant, tail of a pheasant, little chicken feet. I so want to join this group. You have no idea. <laughs> Harvey's our spokesbeast because he is made of many different parts. And we decided that that was an appropriate metaphor for what we were doing. Then once you're a fellow and you've been around for a while, you might be invited to curate. The curator is the person that is kind of like the editor of the magazine yeah. for that night. Mm -hmm. They're the okay. one that picked the stories. They're the one that weave the stories together. And our fellows also help us with fundraising. They are our volunteer mm -hmm. staff. They are really the backbone of our organization. And we now have over 100 of them on both coasts wow. because we have a chapter in New York City now for the last three years. So I saw. That's amazing. Here's a question. How would you describe your odd salonists, both speakers and audiences? Intellectually curious. That's the single most defining trait. Um, and I think one of the things that's really magical about the fellowship and our speakers pool is that it's not only interdisciplinary. It is truly an opportunity to come together with other intellectually curious people. Um, oh, wow. It's a really magical group of people. That sounds amazing, actually. Here's another question for you. Someone called Odd a gateway drug to history, which is very tongue-in-cheek. And clearly you surround yourself with history buffs. 
Do you know anyone who's really taken the love of history way too far? I mean, our group is full of people that at a cocktail hour are going to wave their hand wildly and talk about history. And mm. when pressed, Aneta will talk about exhumed corpses. And it's a really <laughs> special group of people who love history and are willing to talk about it at all times. That's amazing. What has been your favorite out there story at Odd Salon? Uh, we've had stories on the science of starling migrations, which is extraordinary, or how Sir Isaac Newton fought counterfeiters. Um, mm -hmm. The story of James McNeil Whistler's artistic revenge on his patron. There's a painting at the De Young Museum that is just amazing that goes with that story. The mm -hmm. real man behind the legend of Emperor Norton here in San Francisco. The many loves and scandals of Lola Montez. I mean, we could go on and on. We've done <laughs> over a hundred of these stories. I've looked at a lot of them on your website. If uh, anyone's interested, you should go on and look. Uh, another question. So your evenings at Public Works in the Mission are themed, ranging from bamboozled to grotesque to bacchanalia. How do you come up with the theme events? A giant whiteboard and a lot of one words going up. And then we take a look at what looks fun, what looks like we could put stories of art, history, science, and adventure around it. And we pick mm -hmm. the ones that look the most interesting for our audience. And for our speakers. On your membership page, it says, do strange things with weird people, which is exactly the kind of thing that get me to join. So what do members get? Well, our membership goes on exclusive events. So we're going to go behind the scenes at museums. We're going to go on foraging adventures in San Francisco. We're going to get into the bowels of boats that are on the San Francisco coastline. And we're going to get behind the scenes of anything that we can get behind the scenes of. I love that. Something else. You've got fairly lively audience participation. What are some of your traditions? Can you share them with us? I think one of the things that is most obvious to somebody joining us in the audience is that we have callbacks. Our audience is not a quiet audience. We organically developed these traditions of shouting back on certain themes like ships and maps and bears. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, so you've got an event coming up on December 5th. Uh, tell us about that. So December 5th is our 10th annual oddments evening. Every year we end with oddments. Oddments is the place where all the stories that get pitched over the course of the year that were great, but didn't quite fit into one of the themes gets an opportunity to go on stage. And it's an opportunity for fellows and speakers to pitch that one amazing story that they're just super passionate about, but that didn't fit one of the themes from the year. And uh -huh. I, I get to curate that. It's coming up on the 5th in San Francisco, and then December 12th in New York City, they do the same thing. And it's their fourth annual oddments in New York. Wow. Okay. Well, I'd love to spend the next basically three hours talking to you about a bunch of things, but uh, we do have a time limit. So to get tickets, learn more, hear previous sessions, enjoy the podcast about Odd Salon, you go to oddsalon.com. But really to experience it, you got to attend in person, which I intend to do. Trey, Anetta, thanks for your time. I really appreciate everything you're doing to help San Franciscans learn that history is not just for geeks, but it's something really cool. Thanks again. Really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Take care. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We're off next week, so join us at 6 p.m. two Mondays from now. If you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. You can email us at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Tonight's show is produced by Wendy Holcomb, Heather Hughes, and Jillian Emblad. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Grace Wan. Good night. Thanks for listening, and have a great Thanksgiving. <laughs>